You're listening to the January 14th edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society. On this edition of The Close-Up, Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones discuss their film, The Theory of Everything. Redmayne and Felicity Jones star as Stephen Hawking and Jane Wilde in The Theory of Everything, which was directed by James Marsh. He directed the Oscar-winning documentary Man on Wire, and the film was adapted by Anthony McCartan from the memoir Traveling to Infinity, My Life with Stephen by Jane Wilde Hawking. The story recalls her relationship with her former husband, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, from his diagnosis of motor neuron disease to his success in physics. A student of astrophysics at Cambridge University, Stephen met Jane while attending a party in college in 1963, when both were working on their PhDs. Felicity Jones received a Golden Globe nomination for her role in the film, while Eddie Redmayne, who dramatically transforms himself for this performance of a mostly wheelchair-bound Hawking, won the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama this past Sunday night. Redmayne and Jones are both nominated for upcoming Screen Actors Guild and BAFTA Awards as well. Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones recently joined us here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center for a screening and conversation in partnership with The Hollywood Reporter. The two were friends long before working together on the theory of everything, and they used that dynamic in developing their on-screen chemistry. Said Redmayne to The Hollywood Reporter's David Rooney, I wanted to make sure it was a film about love. So let's go now to that conversation. So, congratulations on the film and all the attention, the, the well-deserved attention that it's receiving. Um, fantastic for you both, fantastic for the, the film as a whole. Um, let's start with the really easy question. Um, what's the one single unified equation that explains your universe? <laughs> no, seriously, we can circle back to that one if you want. <laughs> but take um, some time. Tell me about... Um, you two, as you came into this project, were you, were you major science, cosmology, astrophysics geeks, or was this all an unknown foreign language to you? I'm afraid it was a completely unknown foreign language to me. I gave up science when I was about 14 or 15. Um, and I, when we started working on the film, they, there was a sort of brilliant man who was himself a professor in astronomy who, who was sort of helping educate me. And he would talk about the intricacies of wormholes and I'd be going, imagine I'm a seven-year-old. <laughs> Let's talk about what an atom is. And, uh, and I would read all of Stephen's sort of words would like pass my retina. Um, but what I understood was a totally different question. And you'd go to these incredibly complicated websites and then sort of astronomyforkids.org. Um, but it was fortunately, actually, Felicity studied um, English and James, our director, studied English. And I studied history of art at university. And so the three of us together, it made for some quite comedic sort of rehearsals, us trying to explain to each like other what we thought. Course. Exactly. Um, but no, we were, we, fortunately, we had some brilliant people to educate us, but it took a while for me anyway. And you, Felicity? 
Um, I mean, we tried our best. Uh, it was a lot of sort of long conversations trying to work out black holes and we think, we th we'd think that we'd sort of worked it out and be able to explain it and then 10 minutes later you, you, it's just gone and you, you have no idea what you're talking about. So, um, so it was very much um, leaving s the physics side to the, to the experts. Well, in a sense, it, Stephen says in the film that what he's looking for is a simple, eloquent explanation. And to me, that is what James Marsh, the director, and the screenwriter, Anthony McCarter, have, have done with this film. They have taken um, potentially indigestible, difficult subject matter and made it actually accessible and immediate so that we're all in there with these discoveries. I mean, was that the same for you? participating in the film? Yeah, well, I, I think that you know what's, it, what's complicated about depicting Stephen's achievements scientifically is that you need a, a quite a serious amount of base knowledge before you can understand how important the intricate things which he has discovered have been. Um, for me, the, 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 that idea of one simple elegant equation um, was, was almost the notion of perfection. And, and I, I always sort of related it somehow to, to acting and quite often people say you know when you do a play how can you do it for six months how can you do the same thing again and again and the answer is because you never get it right and you go back each night to try and sort of make better what you did the day before and to 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 strive for perfection with the knowledge that you won't ever actually achieve it and and for me that is kind of what the theory of everything is it's it's aspiring for complete and total knowledge um and with the acknowledge and understanding with the acknowledgement that perhaps you'll never find it. Mm. Yeah, Anthony said, I think he summed it up, it's uh, saying that the film is as much about um, a love of physics as it is uh, the physics of love, which I think rather beautifully encapsulates what, what the film's trying to achieve. Um, but it's, it's ex what I liked about it early on reading the script is that in many ways the film is this endeavour to... to to try and explain why we're here and and Jane is using faith and 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 God to do that and and Stephen is using science but mm. they're both their missions are the same is 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 trying to to understand the sort of the purpose of our of our lives but mm. but just doing it in in very different ways and they fit together beautifully I, I think especially the breakup scene where you give her that little that little bit of belief in God and it's it's like a meeting a meeting of the two that comes at the point of, of departure, of separation. I mean, I think that's quite a beautiful, poignant scene. Um, you both played real characters before, real people before. Eddie, um, recently in, uh, relatively recently in My Week with Marilyn and Felicity in The Invisible Woman, among others. Um, but perhaps not real people who are such, such uh, important figures and who are very much still with us, one of whom happens to be one of the, the greatest brains on the planet. Um, is there an added sense of responsibility with that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, it, and it actually, the responsibility got heavier the more we found out about these people. And, and they're such... Um, they're such intricate characters, and I mean they're real people, but you know such such um, people with with depth, but also not always what they seem. You know, on the surface they can seem quite quite English and and um, 
and and composed but but underneath both Stephen and Jane are incredibly passionate people who have lived very unconventional lives and and did everything they could in order to to you know to make their relationship survive so so we'd constantly be finding these little details looking at archive footage of, of Stephen and Jane together and and just the, the the synchronicity that they had it you know it was almost like they they were they were dancing together that we sort of referred to it in that way that they're there they became like one person um, so just the, the more detail we found in reality we, we wanted to put on on the screen so it, it did constantly felt like you know you'd go ho you'd finish work at the end of the day and you wouldn't be able to quite switch off because you'd think is there another little can we bring more to it because they have such sort of humor and, and vivacity a, as people mm. Eddie I think definitely it, it, it brought it sort of raised the stakes for us and in, in the most simple way as Felicity was saying it got more complicated because the more these people allowed you into their lives and introduced you to their children and to you know I remember meeting Jane for the first time and Felicity had already spent some time with her and I walked in and they were literally in her wardrobe that Jane was showing her wedding dress and showing and, and when people allow you know I'm one of those people when I see a film I believe it to be true you know I it's a very powerful medium film and and of course when you're telling a story within two hours there are you have to pick and choose and um so the responsibility as they trusted us it felt more more that was more and more weight but it wasn't just the responsibility to them it was the responsibility to the science to the specifics of that it was the responsibility in in preparing for the role felicity and i spent three or four months going to an als clinic in london and met maybe 30 or 40 people and their families who were s suffering from from als and some of those people invited us into their homes and 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 that generosity meant that you absolutely had to be rigorous with making sure you got the disease right and and so there were uh, I, we both played people in the past before and i think when i was doing my week with marilyn if if i were to do it again i would be much more sensitive to what michelle was going through because um the the, the stakes do feel a, a wee bit, a wee bit higher mm. Maybe you could both talk a little about um, the first time you met the people you're playing. You, do you want to start? Um, well, we we both met Jane and Stephen quite actually quite late on in our in our preparation process. We'd had so you had already built the characters. Uh, yeah, well, in, we'd in already you way. know you'd done your research and you've had all these ideas about them, and then you're slightly worried that that you might have been going off on a tangent and, and got it completely wrong. Um, but but in meeting them, um, it it just meeting Jane you know I'd been reading her book and I was sort of in awe of this woman you know she's in incredible um, strength and this emotional strength but also this physical strength so I was quite um, intimidated but she was just incredibly open and I and I think when you're playing a real person you're just trying to build up trust and and in some ways you're trying to get their blessing so we I just went around for a cup of tea you know initially it just started in quite an informal way and and just chatting and, and getting to know one another um, and actually a lot of it is is uh, is you're trying to pick up clues from someone you know you don't it didn't feel right to sort of go in and ask her very very personal questions initially it was it was about kind of observing i was fascinated by the way she moved and and there were little idiosyncrasies in 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 the way she held herself and all those little details that that um that i felt instinctively i, I wanted to to put into the characterization of her 
um, and then and then meeting Stephen was was. Um, do you want to talk about? Yeah, no, that was it. Was uh, similarly, it was, uh, it was only just before we started filming. They were both have incredibly busy schedules, and it was this mixed blessing, as Felicity was saying, of going. Yeah, of we only had four or five days before we started filming because we weren't shooting the film chronologically. I'd had to chart what I thought his physical decline was and make certain character choices. And then the fear is, what if you meet this person, you realize you've got it completely wrong. Um, and I was so nervous when I met him. And, and now Stephen, he, he, he just uses this muscle under his eyes. So he has glasses with a sensor. And then he has a computer screen with the alphabet and a cursor that goes across the alphabet. And when he moves, twitches this muscle, it stops on one letter. And so when you're having a live conversation with him, it can take really an extended amount of time for him to communicate. And so when you're having a conversation with him, there are these incredibly specific and unique rhythms. And and if you're someone like I am, who ha has a sort of hatred of silence, and um, then it's pretty horrific. And, and I just basically spent the first 45 minutes just spewing forth information about Stephen Hawking to Stephen Hawking. <laughs> and, 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 and I kid you not, it verged on, on the catastrophic. And, and, and and eventually I sort of calmed down. He was just looking at me kind of in this look of, you're going to tell me about myself? Um, and eventually I calmed down. And, and similarly to what Felicity was saying, it was a mixture of he's in that three hours, four hours we spent together, he said maybe eight or nine sentences, of, of which a couple were very specific things that were incredibly helpful. And one was about his voice, which was very helpful. Um, but really you were looking at that the extraordinary thing with Stephen, it's like all the facilities we have of communication, of tone of voice, of gesture, of it's like all of those energies are channeled into those very few muscles that he can move. And so even even though he can move very little, he has probably the most charismatic face I've ever seen. And, and that, that wit and that humor and this kind of force of personality was really what I, what I took away from that. Obviously, they're two great roles. It's a fantastic story, an incredible love story. What was the decisive factor that made you sign on to this project? What was it? I wish it was. Yeah. I wish, I wish it was our choice. Um, really, you, we, we both, I think, hunted it down. We, we, we read this story, and, and it, was, it was unlike and what you went we expected, it. and we went after it, yeah. It's, mm. Yeah, it's more would they have us rather than would we have them. Mm. <laughs> um, it was... It's it's one of those scripts that you you don't get very often where where it's just you know it's so character driven mm. and that's such a rare thing now that um, that you really go for it when you when you read it and it was um, it was about trying to trying to impress James really and and convince him that we that we could take on these roles. Mm. We'll talk in a little while about the physical side of the performance, particularly of <coughs> Eddie's performance as Stephen, but also Felicity's because there, there's a lot of physicality required in being a full-time caregiver for a loved one. But um, first of all, you're both playing a 20-year arc. Um, how did you do that? Aside from the, ob the obvious tricks, the makeup, the hair, and the wardrobe, how did you age your characters 20 years? Well, I mean, s certainly from Stephen's point of view, it was one, you know, a lot, there was a lot of help from, from obviously his physical deterioration, his vocal deterioration, the changes, the shifts in fashion, all of those things you're talking about. What was interesting for me was this idea of dependency and, and you know, many of the people I met who were suffering from ALS, one of the first things they would tell me was how independent they were as people and what it's like to have that... Um, 
dependency or independence taken away and and negotiating that was part of the sort of t aging thing for me really is like what choice do you make if you're someone that is independent and yet you suddenly become entirely dependent do you thank if everything that is done for you you thank that person for how do you do, how do you live with the guilt of that um and there's something in Stephen, which I think he had from the beginning, but but it's I describe it as a kind of Lord of Misrule quality. A kind of there's a there's a mischief to him, which you're aware of when you meet him. And it's almost there is, I don't want to say it's not childlike, but there is something kind of, um, and he plays with that, and he plays sort of up to that. And so there was a, that it was almost like I wanted to retain that that glint in his eye that he had when he was young, because I felt like a lot of the physical work was going to do the aging side of it f for me mm. and that is still there right up until the end of the film and, and certainly in his initial exchanges with, with Elaine there is a real sense of mischief there um, Felicity um, well it was it was very much uh, you approach it in terms of costume um, how that shifts and changes as someone gets older the different aesthetic choices they make um, and then obviously hair and makeup as, as you said is a huge part of it but but with with Jane it was um it was when she's younger she has this you know she's very very shy and and there's a naivety and uh um, and in many ways a sort of uh, a hopefulness um, that, that I thought was interesting to show how, how that shifts and changes and, 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 in, and as she gets older she becomes a lot there's a toughness in her actually that comes out and she becomes a little less um, sentimental and, 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 uh, and I quite like that about her that w when Elaine comes to comes to the house and you know says um how wonderful Stephen is and, and Jane sort of is quick to remind her that she's been looking after this this man for 25 years and you know she's she's there's a there's a there's a curtness to her which which comes out of her um th the difficulty of their experiences so it was it was it was just trying to to, to map out how um, how someone's character shifts and changes, but 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 very much there was in both of them there is this there is this innocent quality, and I remember very early on seeing Jane when I went round to the house, she was looking at these old pictures of her and Stephen when they first met, and she was she was sitting cross-legged on the floor, um, and just at that moment I just felt how strong this love was that that even now they she she was married to someone else and 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 uh, you know they'd been through a divorce and and uh, but but still and it was a different kind of love but still there was this huge huge connection between them and I remember feeling that was that was such an important part of of, of playing her mm. um Eddie tell us about the the physical challenges of the role I mean you are performing on set all, all day with uh, distorting your limbs, your joints. Uh, I mean, there's got to be a lot of physical discomfort. How did you get in and out of that every day? What help did you have? I, know, I understand you wor worked with a dancer. Yeah, Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. It, it was one of those things when well, the great gift that James, the director, gave us, both Fisty and I, is from when we were cast, we had about four months um, in which we had our own time to prep. and we knew that we weren't going to be able to shoot chronologically because of budget reasons and um so we knew that within the same day you'd have to shift to playing Stephen and Jane in completely different periods in their lives w when you meet Stephen and Jane 
or even reading about them, the illness couldn't be less important to Stephen. It's something that he was diagnosed with. It was a brutal diagnosis. The way in which it was handled was bad. And he's literally, he is someone that lives forward and lives incredibly passionately and fully. And, and in that sense, I wanted to be sure that this, when I read the script, it didn't see, it was a film about love and the complications and the boundaries and the, all the different guises of love. It wasn't a film about a disease. And so what was important for me was to work on the physicality in those months beforehand in order that when it came to the two of us working together on set, we were just playing the emotional story. Um, and, and my instinct with it was to learn the f stages of physicality to educate myself and then learn them like dance. And so I went to this ALS clinic in London for f four months and, and you'd meet patients at different stages. With motor neuron disease or ALS, you have what are called upper neurons and lower neurons. And if your upper neurons stop working, there is a kind of rigid quality. And if your lower neurons stop working, there's a wilting, a kind of softness. And ALS is a combination of those two things, but how it manifests itself in each patient is unique. So the first thing was, because there's only documentary footage of Stephen from the 1980s when he's already in the chair, was trying to work out what his progression to the chair would have been. And so we found as many photos as we could and, um, and showed them to the specialist who would by looking at a wedding photo in which Stephen was holding Jane's hand and it would look totally natural, you would then see that actually his hand was on top of hers and it was wilted and he was putting all of his weight into Jane and she would be able to go, okay, so his right hand has lower neuron and it's gone by 1963. And through, and it was actually an amazing YouTube video of Stephen doing zero gravity, which happened a few years ago. And that is the only time that you can see him out of the wheelchair. So you see him floating in space. And it's very interesting to watch because there you can see what is, what is rigid and what is, what is soft. And, and so I then, having worked that out, worked with this dancer, Alex Reynolds, to, to find, and firstly to train your body to be able to sustain it for, long, for lots of takes, and then, um, and then to be able to be sort of free enough within it, and also for Felicity to be able to because as she was saying before it is like a dance at all the different stages Jane becomes an extension of Stephen's body in the sense of physically doing everything for him and and so we worked together to make sure we were always at those same stages and that there was a we had the freedom to improvise basically mm. Felicity what about the physical side of your performance because um, I mean what we really see in this film I think the key the key thing I, I took away from from uh, your performance is the incredible empathy that the film brings to, to your character and to the role of the caregiver. Um, that Herculean kind of responsibility of looking after someone's well-being all day, every day, when they're physically powerless. And you become stronger. As we, we watch this girl who goes into this with no experience of a relationship that we know of, um, thinking she may be in it for two years, but she's certainly in it and fully committed. And, and year after year, she stays, she stays with him. She takes more and more of the physical responsibility. How do you actually incorporate that into your performance? Because you know, you're a tiny little thing. You're not going to be hoiking Eddie Redmayne around the set. I know, strong, without, strong. Without she was. Yeah. Well, I had to go to the gym. I had to start working out, you know, to get, to get the strength. Um, he may look very light, but in fact, he's very heavy. Um, it, well, actually, uh, what was incredible was visiting, there was this um, amazing woman whose husband had um, or has motor neuron disease. And she, it was interesting to talk to her because she was going through it at that time, whereas Jane was looking at it 
retrospectively. And, um, and I just spent time with her actually observing um, her interaction with her husband. And what, what was so interesting was how the caregiver constantly um, is, has always got one eye on their partner. Um, so, so, and it's actually a, a moment that we found in the archive footage when um, Jane is, is, is talking to someone else um, and Stephen's in the chair n next to her and he, at this point, he's, he's lost the, um, the ability in his muscles to, to bring his, his head back and so his head would fall forward and it's a rather beautiful moment where Jane is talking but she just completely instinctively just takes her hand and pushes Stephen's head back onto the back of the chair and and so it's almost like it's a sixth sense for that other person you know she's she's she can have her back to him and she's reading she's reading what, what what's what's going on with him um purely instinctively and and and, and so it was important that that we had a, a, a trust between us to, to, to build that, that relationship. But I, I think there was something, there is something in Jane Hawking and she actually wrote an email. Um, it's, she's seen the film a few times and has had a chance to process it. And she just wrote such a, an email um, saying, you know, how much it, it's meant to her. But, but it's actually, I, I felt like, you know, saying back to her that she does have this profound spirit of, of giving mm -hmm. and, and and was constantly drawing on this and this personal strength to to maintain their relationship. And I think it was always about maintaining Stephen's dignity. That that's what was so important for for, for both of them was that she was constantly um, it, she never saw the disease. You know, for both of them, it was it was always it's just it's Stephen. You know, and 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 making sure that that he could live the, the fullest life he could. Mm. There were amazing things that Jane did. One of which was in the original we, we shot, which is she did a huge amount for disabled rights um, because Stephen was so high profile and um, and and we think of of disabled not only disabled rights but access being something that that we take for granted. Maybe now but how it's still limited in many places but there was a scene just at the end where you see Stephen and Jane in the garden at Buckingham Palace there was a scene just before just moments before that shot you see in which Jane's giving the the, the sort of the Queen's staff a bollocking for not having disabled access to the you know and, and, it, and but what she did was really extraordinary I mean she fought many 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 battles Jane. While this film was being made there was an extraordinary explosion of attention around ALS um above all with the, the ubiquitous ice bucket challenge. I mean, with all of that happening and all this renewed attention around the disease, was that like, you know, great, this is gonna help us sell our movie or, oh my God, we have to get it right? Um, no, it, it definitely w wasn't the, f uh, the former. It, frankly, in the experience that we had had prepping for the film, and going to these clinics, and at what would happen at the clinic is Dr. Katie Seidel, who was the, the specialist we were working with, would meet the people who were suffering from ALS. At the end of her session, she'd go, by the way, there are some actors here playing Stephen Hawking in general. Would you be interested in meeting them? And we would go, and they were very generous to us. But what was absolutely apparent was this specialist could do nothing. You know, there is, there is no cure to ALS. It's been around for over 100 years. People still don't really know the cause. Um, and that's a lot to do with the amount of money that's been put into research um, 
And what was astounding for us, it was once we had finished the film and the ice bucket challenge started and uh, some people were like, oh, all these celebrities are jumping on the back of it and all this. And you go, oh, well, you can be as cynical as you want, but frankly, every dollar it's uh, or pound uh, you know, in, in, in the UK that it's making towards that can only be a good thing. And, and I hope that, I feel like the term ALS became really well known, but I'm not, I'm not sure that people, some people necessarily knew what it was. And I hoped that our film would, would really d demonstrate the, the, the physical and emotional cost of the disease. But also remember, Stephen was given two to five years or to 10 years, which is the normal um, diagnosis, and he's completely, he's the one who superseded all those odds. So now it's- in his 70s, right? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of moments in the film I think are particularly beautiful, but one that is almost a throwaway moment is I think when Jane's lovely, sensible mum, played by Emily Watson, says, go and join the choir. You know, you need that one hour a week. And I think that's something, if you read any literature about full-time care, um, particularly for a loved one, that is that that escape valve is something that is essential for everybody. And I love what happens to her character there. And the the way we we remain invested in her, the empathy is always with her. And yet at the same time, we see another side of her. We see her. There's a likeness to her in the scenes with Jonathan. And you see her for the first time experiencing what could be an unencumbered relationship. I mean, was that, was it difficult to transition in and out of that without feeling like you were betraying the character or making her um, dishonest in her relationship with Stephen? It was it was quite um, it was quite tri tricky to navigate um, absolutely because and and that's partly what I what I loved about the script is that it, it felt very um, unusual to be exploring um, a woman who at a point in her life falls in love with two men for for very different reasons um, but but absolutely it it. All, but for all of us, we were constantly just trying to maintain empathy because all of them are coming from a very understandable situation and, and none of us wanted to be the kind of the good guy or, or the bad guy. It was always trying to show the the complication of that, you know, that scenario. And and, and for Jane, at that point, it's very much that she, she just needs another support system. And actually going back to raising money for ALS, when someone gets the disease, you know, you lose an a, essential one half of the income into the household. And, and, and actually, Jane and Stephen didn't have any money. You know, it wasn't until Stephen started making money with his books that that they had they could afford to have nursing care so so very much jane was taking the full responsibility of that so so when she finds her faith and and the singing that's her you know that's a way for her she sees that alongside jonathan actually i mean it it could be a contradiction but it's all to try and keep the family together it's just quite an unconventional way of doing it is that the aim is to try and keep her and stephen and the family united and 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 Jonathan becomes an essential support system for, for, for all of them. And in many ways, it's a love story, not just between Jane and Jonathan or Jane and Stephen. There's a love, I mean, it's a different kind of love, but there's a love between, between Stephen and Jonathan. Mm. I, I like the fact that there are kind of um, symmetrical scenes with Stephen and Jane and later with Stephen and Jonathan in which he seems to be tacitly giving them permission to fall in love. Do you, do you agree with that? I think it was. Uh, I, th I think that 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 area of the relationship was incredibly complicated, and I uh, 
this whole thing of the guilt that I was talking about when um, and whether you thank someone and continue to thank them and uh, but what it must also feel like to watch your wife with an able-bodied man at dinner and how that must make you f feel um, but at the same point I don't think they could imagine they'd become so intrinsically linked symbiotic almost I don't think either of them could imagine a life a life without um, and and certainly when it came to the scene um, when they part ways f for me it was because Stephen had met someone and realized there was another way and could see this relationship burgeoning with t and, and and so it was a sort of letting go almost rather than a rather than a sort of breaking up and it's such a unique breakup scene because you're communicating with a disembodied robotic American accented voice that is is not your husband's in the in the film. Well, actually, we were just watching the end of the film um, just now, and I was just thinking at, at that that moment almost when Jane gives Stephen the the clicker for the for the machine. In some ways, that she knows that that may be the end of their relationship because it's been so codependent that gives him a freedom you know the freedom of of, of to have a voice um and and absolutely it's it's um that that scene when they when they part is um is profoundly is profoundly difficult for for both but of them they have so many beautiful scenes together i mean Things that are almost throwaways, but the Sunday roast scene I just love with with uh, Stephen's family. It's so beautifully played, and I I'm a big big fan of Simon McBurney, who is just oh. a theater genius. So seeing him turn up as your dad was great, and you know for so all, many for all of the actors for oh, us yeah. for I mean, both David Felicity Tullis and I, like every day there was there was someone extraordinary coming yeah. to set. We couldn't even believe that they'd said yes, frankly. But no, but Simon McBurney and, and actually the whole Hawking family. Jane writes a lot about how you would go around for Sunday lunch at the Hawkings, and the children would just be sitting there reading books. Like, and and whilst lunch was going on, and you know they were quite an eccentric family. They drove a, a London taxi cab, I think. But mm. no, across the board, it was an amazing. But you know, it's it's one of so many beautiful scenes that I love the cleaning his glasses, and uh, of course the dance at the May Ball and the um, the croquet match. Uh, do you have a favourite? Was there one that was particularly pleasurable to do, or or particularly tough to do? Oh. <laughs> I don't know about pleasurable. I think. Um, I think there are um, there are certain scenes that you always have in your mind that you know that you 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 have to you kind of get right. They're sort of turning point scenes, and and I guess for for both of us that moment with um, when Stephen loses his voice um, and and after the tracheotomy uh, with the with the spelling board that that felt like a scene. Um, in many ways, it's almost like that's when they break up. That's actually the moment when they can't communicate properly with each other anymore and and it's it's symbolic that they've there's a literally there's a board between them that the they're no longer the the relationship isn't working then even though it's a few years later that they actually split up it felt like that was that was a huge turning point for the story so you always have those scenes in your head that you're slightly dreading you know because you know they're waiting and and you're just um you, you sort of are quite tentative about your, your preparation for them. But actually that scene um, was so beautifully composed by Anthony. It was, it was very, it was, um, it's when the writing works, it makes your job so much easier when it just has a, has a rhythm. And, and he, he constantly uses silence so beautifully as well. You know, when, when, when the pauses are so well placed, then it's always, it's always a pleasure to play. Mm. Um, 
just quickly, and then we'll open up to audience questions, but two things. You're both Oxbridge background. Oxford, Cambridge, clever, right? Um, how, how much did you feel at home in the, in the setting of the film, or was it completely different being the 1960s? I'm, I'm assuming you guys went to, the, went to college in the 90s, late 80s, 90s? Yep, 90s, 90s 2000s, sorry. in fact. 2003 <laughs> <Yes>. to 2006. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you what, the, the, I went to a Mayball in Cambridge and, and, and working title, the producers uh, throw a better fireworks display than the, the Mayball I went to, so that's all I can tell you. Um, no, it was really interesting that actually, I, we shot the exteriors in Cambridge the first week of, of filming and uh, we'd had these four months of prep and the, the stakes were getting higher and higher up to that first day that you start shooting and I remember I was so nervous that it took like a day, a day into filming or something, and my mum and dad sent me a text message going, how amazingly lucky to think that like 10 years on, you're back at Cambridge getting to play Stephen Hawking. One of the most famous alumni. Yeah, exactly, and, and it took me that to kind of to pull, put my, take my blinkers off and even have a moment of, of sort of flooding nostalgia for it is a breathtakingly beautiful place mm. and, um, and it was wonderful to it has so much of its own history that it did kind of bleed into the piece in some way Was it similar to your experience at Oxford? Or? Um, God no I mean the, bo the balls were so much more debauched than that you know <laughs> by the end of them everyone's sort of rolling around on the grass you know in, in full sort of terrible drunkenness um so uh, it was but it is there actually you do forget you sort of take it for granted how um because you're so sort of you know focused on on the scene uh, um how beautiful those places are um and they are and, and actually kind of untouched by time as well absolutely they are they're sort of little bubbles of um of history absolutely um but it is it's interesting how cambridge actually is a is almost like a, another character in the film in mm. some ways you know it's um very different from an american on. ivy league college i mean totally different ball game i think to in terms of atmosphere and history well, it was interesting. One thing I remember watching *Chariots of Fire* just before we started making the film, and and that and it w and that that film s starts with a a sort of big shot of King's Cambridge again, the same sort of area that we were shooting, and it had like five thousand extras, period cars, all of Ca all of Cambridge seemed to be closed down. It David did make Putnam. me laugh that when That's David Putnam money. There you go. That's a lot more money than, <laughs> than Eric Filmer. So, so when we started, I remember it being like one street with one dude going past on a bicycle, and that was our. That was our opening. The same guy, same just guy. going like backwards <laughs> and forwards, different wigs on. So just finally, before we open up, uh, maybe a word about James Marsh. I think James Marsh is uh, probably more than any other director working today, just moves fluidly between documentary and narrative with a, with a grace and an accomplishment that very few directors can match. Um, I'm a huge fan of Man on Wire and Project Nim, great documentaries. But also I think Shadow Dancer was, was a really underappreciated film, a terrific movie. Um, from a couple of years ago that wasn't seen by nearly enough people. And this one, thankfully, is remedying that and getting his work seen. I wonder if, are you aware in any way that his background in nonfiction filmmaking informs his work on this or not? Uh, absolutely, I, I feel 100%. He's, James is an incredibly um, perceptive, sensitive director and his, um, his extraordinary skill is that he, he 
lets you he stands back actually and um and that that takes a lot of bravery to do as a director and he he lets you take hold of the characters so completely that you're always you're you're pleasing the characters you know you become obsessive about them rather than trying to please the director which is a magical thing to do so that that we felt total ownership over them and he constantly he makes you feel safe that you um that you're in an environment actually where you can make a fool of yourself and and experiment and and make mistakes and he'll protect you in that uh, but uh, but I feel he does shoot a lot so we did lots and lots of takes there is a lot of material because as with his documentaries a lot he loves the edit that's mm -hmm. his favorite favorite part of the process um so we always were were our instinct was to give James lots and lots of material, knowing that that he would ha have you know lots to play with in the edit to 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 really hone the story. Mm. And the, the the other thing is that what what was so interesting about this film is that every department, every every aspect of everything affected everything else. So anything you were doing physically, if it was costumed incorrect, incorrectly and wasn't exposed, then it would be doing nothing. And similarly, that would have ramifications on the makeup and then what camera angle you were being shot from. For example, as because Stephen loses a lot of weight throughout his illness, but we weren't shooting chronologically they would do brilliantly clever things like oversize the um the wheelchairs or, or the camera angles would shift and change and the amazing thing that james does is he emboldens every department and what felicity was saying about allowing you to make mistakes he 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 will hear everyone i i, I describe him as like the great conductor he will hear everyone's voice and then make his own and, and so the, the notion of collaboration, which I think is one that's kind of flung around quite a lot, really we did feel like there was this team of people all, all working together. Mm. Let's hear from the audience. Any questions? Don't be shy. No hands? We'll just recap the question for the people who couldn't hear it at the back. The, the physical side is obviously a big part of the performance, but how do you prepare for the emotional roller coaster, the ups and downs of, of what the characters go through? Well, we actually, um, Eddie and I both have worked um, in theatre together, and so we, not not, we've worked actually with the same director in, in different plays, and and one thing we've learned from that is just having rehearsal time, and that is so key because it really gives you a chance to to lose some of your self consciousness actually, and because we we just you know we just had each other a lot of the time and it was about really trusting that other person and 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 that came from having those few weeks just to be it would be James Eddie and I in a in a room in London just trying things out and 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 also just getting to know each other so so that was a huge part of it and and feeling and actually Eddie and I would um we we would we we developed this method where um, we would give each other you know direction from behind the camera. It was um, something Eddie had worked with the director where they'd done this where because you trust the director to take the sound out afterwards that you know you'll be doing a shot and then you might say to the other person or you know you'll sort of give um little pushes and shoves and, and notes say come on you can do better than this or i mean it almost sounds like a crazy sort of coach but it was just doing anything to make the performances as as vibrant and as um as as real as possible so this is being really polite actually what we do it was the croquet scene you know that croquet scene and you know steven's trying to keep it together this was on about day two of filming and we we had this discussion and so i think as i Stephen was trying to keep it together i said felicity will you will you scream some abuse at me from off camera and so she started like just 
going because we were old friends she just went really for the went jugular for like and, and, and <laughs> i was trying to keep it together as she was getting like and what was absolutely hilarious is the poor producers and all the crew these like these two actors who are just day two of like a four two month schedule and they were like oh my god <laughs> they hate each other this is catastrophic but like and then i would do the same back to to felicity and it really did and then all of that noise is taken out but the tension that it built was was so that emotional side of it was interesting. but the other thing with both characters was humor and like what there was one guy who i met who had als and i met him the morning after he had almost choked to death on on and he was there with his wife he literally almost died and he walked in and and his wife was explaining this scenario and she said how he had walked downstairs that morning and the first thing he had said was i wonder what death defying act i can do today you know that was this and this thing this like humor that stephen finds and it, which was absolutely true when you met him we would always try look for the light and improvise the light as well well they both have a very they're very unsentimental people both and they have this they do have this incredibly you know, dry sense of humor did you? Can I just jump in? Did you also meet Jonathan, and did you meet the the children and the grandchildren? Yes, we met. Yeah, Jonathan. Um, actually, all of us had dinner together with with Jonathan. He was he was very much involved um, in in discussions. We should mention Charlie Cox is wonderful. And film. Charlie is Such brilliant. Is yeah. so so beautiful. And actually, it's it's so it's so much harder as an actor to come in and out of a film when you're not in all the time it's really difficult you know you'll do a day one week and then you've got you know two weeks off and then you come in and that's a testament to how good those actors are that they come in and deliver such nuanced believable brilliant um, performances David Thewlis we all wanted him as our college professor <laughs> yeah he's so just just little it's all the details I love of his it's got great hand movements um, but the children were Tim who's their youngest child he he was brilliant actually because sometimes Eddie and I would be sort of quite really careful about you know being true to 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 Jane and Stephen and, and the seriousness of it and then he he I remember him telling us that they used to put um when he was little he would put swear words in Stephen's voice box um, <laughs> and things like that so we would so we would take that and go great we'll put that in the film you know just to to take away some of our reverence um did you see the film with them or, or were you curious about their response when they did see the film God yes, uh, but curious and petrified. Curious, it was like it was. Yeah, I I was rehearsing something when Stephen came to see it, and he came with his nurses. They showed him a working title, and I saw him just before he saw the film, and I said, "Look, I'm you know we're really nervous, but." You know, I hope you enjoy the film, but let, let, let me know what you think. And he took a w wee while to type out his response. And then Meanwhile, you're dying. <laughs> I literally was crying inside. Um, and then he said in his, his iconic voice, he said, I will let you know what I think, good or otherwise. <laughs> his words. And I was like, okay, thanks, Stephen. If it's otherwise, maybe we just stick to otherwise. I don't even know. Like all the... Um, but no, he, he and Jane and Jonathan and the children have just been, like, it's so generous and kind. And, and the greatest thing for us is Stephen owns the, um, the copyright to his voice, that voice that we all know. And when we made the voice, we had used this, this sort of approximated version of, of his voice. And then after seeing the film, he offered us his voice. And so that the voice that you see in the film is actually his. And for, you know, when you're trying to play someone and get as close to them as possible, of course, that was such an amazing gift. for mm. Any other questions before we wrap up? Um, hello. First of all, you guys just did such an amazing job. So congratulations. 
Um, I, I guess my question was about the the scene at the end. I just wanted your take when he right before he goes into his philosophy of life, and you see this vision of him standing up, wanting to pick up the film or the pen. And I was just curious what uh, your interpretation of that scene is. That was a scene that when I read read the script, it always kind of floored me for some reason, and it was it was something that after spending time with Stephen, kind of made even more sense, which was. Yes, he has humour. Yes, he's lived fully. He lives passionately. He really has made the best. And you will always find him being a great optimist despite the circumstances. But from every single ALS patient I met, including one gentleman called Glenn, who, you know that scene when they're at the kitchen, when they're at the dinner table after he's got the PhD and everyone's eating, and just the most simple dexterity that we all take for granted becomes something that is like that's profound loss like me and and for me that scene was always about yes he has managed to live this full impact but let us not forget for a second that the most basic things and capabilities that we have are not for it's it's to underline and reaffirm that that is not forgotten um yeah before we wrap up what's next for the two of you Felicity's done hundreds of films. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, you always have three films at Sundance. <laughs> I know. Um, I guess um, if it's if if it's a decent script, then why not? Um, what's happening? Um, I just actually have finished. Well, I'm halfway through. I have three days left on um, a film called A Monster Calls, which is directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, who directed The Impossible. Mm and the orphanage um and he i'm a huge fan of his yeah. so it was great to great to be working with him um and that will i think that's coming out 2000 and so it's ages away it's like 2016 i guess the end of next year um and Pressing to that's only a year away <laughs> I, know, I know it's it's gonna come quickly um so which yeah so it's just absolute joy to be working with him he's, he's a very very talented director mm. And Eddie, what's next? Um, I'm I'm just actually p prepping a film. Um, I've taken a long <laughs> holiday, <laughs> uh, and it's called The Danish Girl, and it's um, it's uh, directed by Tom Hooper, who I work with on Lemmy's Rob, and it's a true story about two artists um, in Copenhagen in the 1920s, and uh, Einar Wegener and Gerda Wegener, and Einar became the first person or one of the first people to transition to becoming a woman. And it's an extraordinary, it's it's a love story and a story about um, identity. And yeah, so it's a quite a, I'm just getting in, rehearsing it now. So. All right, well, thank you so much. And congratulations again on the film. Thank you. And thank please you. excuse my mortifying flub that saying you went to college in the 80s or 90s. Of course <laughs> you went in 2000s. <laughs> I have no concept of age. Don't worry. Thank anyway, you. thank you all. Thank you. Thank The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, 
please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.